Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. And we're still seeing it quite well through that haze. T-minus 37 seconds. Fight with growing e equals MC. That all men are created About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fantastic episode of Finding Your Frequency. My name is Ryan Treasure. I'll be hosting today. We're going to sit back, relax, and listen to a fantastic story from our great guests that we'll be having on today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Mr. Ron Corey. Ron is the author of a book called Tenacity, telling the gripping true story of how Ron, a Las Vegas businessman, Marine, and former Brooklyn Knight survivor, corruption and cancer to achieve the American dream. Ron, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me on today. Hey, we appreciate it. So, Ron, Finding Your Frequency is about that journey that uh, you, you, that you went on, that time where you found your frequency and you said, aha, this is what I'm going to do. And I know your story is a little bit more detailed than just the simple, oh, I wanted to solve a problem, so I started a business or or those types of things. So let's just kind of go back to the beginning and, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about your business career and you being a Marine and, you know, kind of leading up to uh uh, what you dealt with, uh, with the corruption and all that stuff, uh, uh, and to achieve the American dream. Let's just kind of tell us the story. Start from the beginning. Sure, sure. Well, uh, as a teenager growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I found that college wasn't for me. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps. That got me out of New York and into San Diego, California, where I did my boot camp. And after two years of service in the Marine Corps, a buddy of mine who I met in boot camp, we ended up being stationed together, decided to give Las Vegas a try. And after a couple of years of working typical jobs, I was a casino dealer and he was a uh, printer, uh, went into business for ourselves with a local tavern back when Las Vegas probably had about 150,000 residents. It was a very small town. And I'd like to think that even before the TV show Cheers came into being, we had this concept where we'd like to own a bar where everyone knew your name. And we ran our first tavern with that in mind and didn't quite know where it would take us. But in the following 10 years, that one small tavern operation developed into a graphics company that grew to a $15 million a year business, a wholesale glass and mirror company, a limousine business, and three other neighborhood casinos. Wow, you guys were busy. Yeah, we were. This was <laughs> a, a young, vibrant town that welcomed any new ideas, whether it was a business that no one had yet tried or a business that was being performed, but we felt we could do it better than someone else. And uh, with a little hard work, a little bit of uh, military discipline, and... Uh, a little investment, we actually found great success here. And my book, Tenacity, goes into great detail on how we started out, raised the money to do it, succeeded overcoming some obstacles, as you mentioned, in the construction of one neighborhood casino, 
in an outlying city to Las Vegas, we encountered a corrupt city councilman who was in a competing business to ours, and rather than abstain from the deliberations for our casino use permit, actually sandbagged us, tried to do away with me as a competitor by framing me with multiple felony charges, and used his small town police department to fuel those flames. And the book goes into some pretty interesting detail as to how I fought back, uh, engaging an undercover operative, and not only prevailing in the ultimate casino goal, but also coming back around full circle to deliver some real good feeling payback to that councilman. Man, that's got to be a tough thing to deal with as you're an entrepreneur trying to build a business and and get in there and build something from the ground up to be met by uh, such scrutiny and 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 such hard headedness and coming from somebody who was, you know, uh, a public servant, so to speak, voted into office. Right. Yeah, I never saw it coming. You know, we we felt like we were going to build a a nice 10,000 square foot neighborhood casino, create about 50 jobs contribute to the tax base. Uh, my buddy, his name is Dan Hughes, by the way, he and I uh, supported multiple little league teams, children's soccer teams, senior citizen bowling teams. We were genuine contributors to the community, not just out to make money. And we never saw it coming, but rather than bow to a bully, we fought back and uh, at the end of the day, after I ended up with Dan and then with another partner who I got into the automobile dealership business, by the end of uh, my business career, I was in 20 various businesses all over the spectrum from, as I say, printing, cutting glass and mirror, the gaming business, the tavern business, the restaurant business, and actually getting into the limousine business in Las Vegas in the 1980s brought a whole new list of challenges where uh, we had to deal with some death threats and some vandalism by people that didn't want anyone getting into the transportation business and competing with them. And uh, my book also tells in significant detail how we overcame that challenge as well. Yeah, that was going to be my next question just listening to your story and hearing about all the different, you know, businesses that you had started and started to grow and, you know, really is a great story of entrepreneurship and really what America is all about and having the ability to go out there, work really hard, you know, use your, your, your blood, sweat and tears in a manner that gives you an outcome of success. And that's just such a great story to hear what kind of characteristics do you do you talk about in the book tenacity that helped your businesses to be successful i know you had all of these political challenges and those types of things but in the realm of launching so many businesses there has to be a couple of common denominators between the businesses that allowed you to be successful what what were those well you know i don't think uh, i don't believe any man is an island you you cannot accomplish significant things all alone And I attribute some of the good fortune I encountered by being a good and loyal friend and expecting that type of loyalty in return. And uh, particularly when I was combating uh, a city government and and a corrupt police department, I actually 
uh, had the help and support of the Las Vegas Police Department in my corner. Luckily, the sheriff and undersheriff at the time were good friends of mine. They knew what I was facing. And uh, to overcome the kinds of things that, that the book describes, I'd say loyalty, friendship, and diligence, uh, both giving it to others and getting it back from friends, is how one can overcome what seems to be insurmountable challenges. Yeah, especially when you talk about the corruption that you had to deal with. I'm sure you had to be surprised by those levels of corruption that you encountered. Was there anything in particular that you really just kind of sat back and said, I can't believe this person is even doing this? Oh, I actually spent years thinking this this was a surreal experience. Uh, In the very early chapters of the book, I try to put the reader in my seat as I'm sitting there in this unbelievable situation where I'm in a preliminary hearing in a courtroom and I'm listening to charges being read against me when I had never before even needed to hire a criminal attorney. And uh, I try to describe the flashback experience that uh, I felt as this was happening, as I framed uh, the, the battle plan to clear my name and deliver some justifiable payback to those that were coming after us. What did, what did you do to get your payback on these corrupt jerks? Well, besides prevailing and getting the casino license I was entitled to, when this particular councilman came up for re-election, I mounted a campaign where I supported anyone who ran against them. I purchased full-page ads in the newspaper prior to election day. I mailed individual mailers to every registered voter in the city and ran radio ads opposing his reelection. And because of a friendship with the general manager of the radio station, uh, which was the dominant radio station in this community that everyone running for election ran their ads on, he was a customer of my tavern. So I arranged for every time this councilman ran an ad uh, asking for people to support his reelection bid. One of my counter ads would run directly after his. <laughs> and even <laughs> though he was the fair haired boy incumbent uh, who was a shoe in for reelection, come election day, one of the people that I backed actually beat him and became the councilman for that jurisdiction. And, uh, uh, I felt like besides, besides not enabling him to get reelected, I also filed ethics complaints with the Nevada Ethics Commission against him, which it took nearly a year to get a ruling on. But I also prevailed in getting uh, a ruling against him for the way he treated me. Wow, that's good. And you, you hit him right in the pocketbook, man. That's definitely the, the, the place. And not, not being reelected definitely made a huge impact in his ability to generate revenue, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. And then and then one day I was out in front of his competing business taking some photographs to use in an upcoming ad against him, and he walked out into the parking lot and he asked, when was it going to stop? Because he was being pummeled with the direct mail and the radio spots. And I offered to let him off the hook 
and stop all activities against him if he would sign a waiver and join me at the local boxing gym and go bare knuckles for 30 minutes in a ring. <laughs> he, of course, declined because no bully likes to be stood up to. But the book <laughs> described that face-to-face -face encounter that day where I offered to stop all hostilities if he gave me a chance to legally whoop his butt. <laughs> and that's an image he's going to have to live with the rest of his life. Oh, that's so totally Marine of you. And, oh, I, I give you I give you mad respect and kudos for that action because, you know, it, it's not it's not very often where you can just go, you know what? You want to stop all this? You know, we can put all this publicity aside and we don't have to publicize anything and we can go right over here behind the building and handle this uh, mano a mano like <laughs> men are supposed to. Right. Exactly right. And I'll never forget the image of when I made that offer. He just looked down, shook his head, turned around and walked back into his building. Oh, man. So I bet you've seen a lot of changes in the business landscape in Las Vegas from the time that you were starting these businesses to now. Uh, what what type of changes have you have you have you seen in Las Vegas in, in the in the 45 years that you've been a resident? Well, besides going from 100,000 residents to over 2 million, which is a significant change in and of itself, one of the topics that my book describes is when I first got into the tavern business, you made your money by selling drinks, collecting quarters in a pool table, collecting quarters in a Pac-Man or a Space Invaders uh, amusement device. And in the mid-1980s, a gentleman I described who was a slot machine salesman invented a game that brought video poker to the forefront. Uh, prior to his invention, slot machines were just traditional handle pull machines that lined up sevens and cherries. And there was no such thing as interactive gaming. But when this fellow, Cy Red, invented video poker and brought it to the market, it actually transitioned the local tavern business from selling drinks to being a gaming property. And uh, with interactive gaming, the gaming revenue that businesses realized became 90% of the revenue. And you would end up comping drinks and food as long as someone was sitting there gambling, just like the big casinos do. Yeah, I see a lot so of that. that was a big transition. Yeah, I see a lot of that. I, uh, I make it out to Las Vegas several times a year because my favorite conventions in the world are right there in Las Vegas and I'm here in Phoenix. So it's a four hour drive and we get to go check out some of the cool conferences for broadcasting. NAB just ended last week, which is my favorite one. Uh, and I did notice that even smaller places that are, you know, just a, a bar or a restaurant that has some uh, video poker machines and some different video type gambling devices in there. You see quite a few people sitting there playing games and it's definitely kind of a shift from your traditional idea of what Las Vegas is with gambling in the big casinos. Oh yeah. That was, a, that was a transition that, that my book spent some time describing how the entire industry shifted and how it came about. In fact, an interesting story about a guy with a vision when this fella developed the concept of video poker and he went to the heads of the company that he sold slot machines for and he said, look, fellas, I developed this on your dime on a proprietary basis. It's, it's really yours. 
uh, I'd like to spearhead this department and take it to market. And they laughed at him and they said, you know, people do not want to engage in interactive gaming. They, back then, back in the day, it was felt that uh, the, the, the guy chomping on a cigar at a dice table was the true gambler and around the periphery of a, of a casino were a couple of slot machines where they sent the wives. And in fact, the gaming floor was generally 80% live table games and 20% machines around the perimeter. And when Cy Red told these gentlemen, well, if you don't believe in it, I do. Can I have the rights to it? And they laughed them. They laughed them right out of the office and said, okay, we won't build these interactive gaming machines for 10 years and you agree not to build slot machines for 10 years and you can have it. And he went off and started a company which later became IGT, International Gaming Technology, doing over $5 billion a year in business. And, wow. and uh, how he developed video poker and how it became his sole and separate property is a story that uh, I think a lot of your listeners would really enjoy reading about. Yeah, and then you look at the landscape today and esports and gaming applications are a you know, $500 billion global market. Oh yeah, the, ga the gaming industry changed when interactive gaming became a reality. Oh yeah. You started seeing casinos across the country on Indian reservations and around the world. And, and the gaming machine manufacturing business transitioned from what used to pretty much just be Bally slot machines to where you now have a hundred different manufacturers making all kinds of different machines. So that's one example of a transition in the business that, that my book describes. Uh, another thing I did, uh, you know, I don't think someone who finds their frequency necessarily creates something from nothing. Some, sometimes the city you live in already has a number of specific types of industry, but uh, the right entrepreneur might come up with an idea to do something better than is already being done. And I did just that in the 1980s when I observed the local limousine scene was not actually going after the luxury market. Uh, limousines were just a slight upgrade from a cab, giving people a ride from the airport to a hotel. So I opened presidential limousine service. I put drivers in tuxedos and I actually stocked my stretch limousines with a full service bar and charged a lot more than what was being charged. But uh, presidential limousine service went into operation in 1984 and is still in business today with the people I sold the company to. Are all of the businesses that you started in Las Vegas, are they still operational? Yes, I would say so. Some have been purchased by others and changed their names, but for the most part, they're all still in business. Yeah, and those ones that, that got purchased and changed their names, they're still probably operating on most of the protocols and procedures that you put in place for that business's success anyways, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if it That's was really a good cool. idea 20 years ago, it's still a good idea. <laughs> yeah, wow, what a story. Just hearing about all the different businesses that you've done, especially in you know Las Vegas and it, it being you know so up and coming. Did you ever have to deal with uh, any, any, uh, any mob interactions or any of that stuff as you were building businesses in Las Vegas? Because I know that was a pretty big stomping ground for organized crime. Well, actually, I... The answer is yes, but not as an opponent. While the mob had their, their tentacles into certain Las Vegas businesses, 
it never affected me in a negative way. I was kind of a small time player with little neighborhood taverns, but uh, the way it affected me in a positive way was growing up in Brooklyn, uh, I actually knew true mob people. And when the word got back there that I was being harassed and threatened by people in an industry that I was trying to break into, uh, a head captain in one of the five mob families in New York came to town and, and said, you know, when I went away for five years, your dad did the right thing and he, he kept an eye out for my family while I was gone. And uh, he never gave me the chance to pay him back. So I've heard that you're encountering these problems. Why don't you let me take care of this for you? And uh, <laughs> in a positive way, I, I respectfully declined because as I said to him and I wrote in the book, listen, Uncle Louie, if anything happens to these jerks, while everything I'm battling is in the newspapers every day, don't you think the officials are gonna know I had something to do with it? I said, let me deal with this my way. And uh, I just wanna be respectful and thank you for your offer of help, but I'm gonna beat them the right way. And I ultimately did. Wow, what a great story. Man, Ron, you could sit here and talk to you about all kinds of crazy stuff too. I mean, you were in the Marines and you did all of these different businesses, but then you had a whole other experience that happened to you too. You ended up getting uh, esophageal cancer at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, I was in great shape. I worked out every day since getting out of the Marine Corps in 1974, but I did have a history of cancer in my family. So I went through a thorough annual physical checkup every year. And in 2005, lo and behold, they found a tumor at the base of my esophagus I had developed esophageal cancer, which only had an 8% survival rate. My doctor sent me to USC hospital for the surgery. It was an 11 hour surgery. Thankfully, I was in good enough shape that my body could endure being filleted for 11 hours. And they took out my esophagus, took out half my stomach, reconnected the balance of my stomach to my throat, and while that procedure took 40 pounds off of me and I have to eat very small meals now. Uh, I did survive it, that was 13 years ago. And uh, I'm here proudly to proclaim that early detection and being fit can help you beat the dreaded C word. Well, yeah, it says to hear that you had a, a lifelong workout regimen that you had been doing. Is that something that you learned in the Marines and you just kind of carried that through after you got out? Or did you have that workout routine as part of your daily regimen before going into the Marines? No, I was a teenager just growing up in New York. I really didn't have a workout regimen. But the Marine Corps got me in great shape. And when I got out, I just made it a point to go to the gym five days a week, stay in good shape. And it came in very handy because uh, back in 1979, when I bought my first tavern, um, it wasn't unlikely that you would have to bounce an unruly drunk out of your bar and being in good shape and being trained to handle yourself came in very handy. Oh, so, uh, Oh, hey, by the way, guys, the owner of the bar is a former Marine who works out five days a week. I think you should probably keep it down over there before he has to come and talk to you. <laughs> well, those days are long gone because with the drinking and driving awareness that occurred and 
the, the whole industry changed where people don't go in a bar anymore and slam down drinks like they did in 1970s and the 1980s. So you don't get that kind of level of problem anymore. So uh, it, it served my purpose when it was necessary. And it actually worked out very well when I had to fight the toughest battle against cancer. Being in good shape is what my surgeon told me was, uh, was the only way I could survive that particular surgery. Wow, that's amazing. So, Ron, as you as you kind of sit there and think about all of the different things that you've done in the past and all of the accomplishments that you had and, and, and your, your beating of the esophageal cancer, what's on the horizon for you? What's next? What is your next what is your next goal or what's your next challenge? What are you what are you going to be doing for the next five years? Well, for the last year, I've been working with tennis champion Andre Agassi on a new product called Square Panda. It's a learning device that teaches children from ages two through eight how to read and spell. Um, we, we are in over 3,000 schools in the United States. We're selling to the public now uh, where people can find the product at squarepanda.com or on Amazon. And we're about to launch Square Panda in China and India. So, uh, that's a new project that I'm working on, as well as marketing my book. You know, when you write a book, many people think that getting it written and published is 90% of the battle. <laughs> but in fact, once it's a book, if you're not out there marketing it, people across the country who don't know you don't know to go buy it. So it's it's quite a task to keep marketing the book, yeah. and I plan on doing that for the rest of this year. Yeah, and your book is is a product just like anything else that's on Amazon, whether it's a computer, a pair of headphones, or or whatever the case may be. And it's yeah, you're exactly right. It's not a if they were if I write it, they will come. It's a if I write it and market it and hit the street and keep marketing it and keep putting it in front of people's faces, then <laughs> then maybe we have some success with the book. I deal with that a lot with our radio show hosts here at. Voice America who who write and publish books and uh, they've all had similar experiences with uh, their books like you have and in, in, in it being a little uh, time consuming and uh, there is definitely a lot of effort that goes into the marketing aspect of that once it comes out. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, I did something a little different than most authors. When I learned that over 20% of the book buying public only buys audiobooks today, I decided to make my audiobook something that stood out, and I hired well-known Hollywood actor Michael Madsen of Donnie Brasco fame to voice my book. That's awesome. I made a deal with, with him. I brought him to town for a week. We spent a week in a recording studio, and uh, the audiobook is available through Audible on Amazon, and it is voiced by Michael Madsen himself. And you can get it free with an Audible trial, I heard. Yeah, Audible has a program where yeah. if you subscribe to a monthly book, uh, your first book is free, or you can purchase it outright if you don't want to become a monthly member. Yeah, and if you guys want to know where to get the and book, it's available on Amazon.com, and then, of course, on Ron's website, RonCoreyAuthor.com. That's R-O-N-C-O-U-R-Y, author. Dot com and uh, you can get a paperback, a hardcover, the ebook, and then of course what you just mentioned, which I think is really cool, uh, with the audiobook being narrated by uh, Michael Madsen. That's really cool. Had, did you know Michael before, or is it something that you guys just kind of said, "Hey, I think this voice fits the personality of the book. Let me go, let me go talk to that guy." How, do, how did you guys get together to make well, that happen? 
when my book consultant told me how many people, what percentage of the audience only buys audiobooks, I thought about a good voice for the book and I started out pursuing Gene Hackman. I knew he retired from movie making, but I thought I might be able to persuade him to record an audiobook. And when my PR people found his agent, she described that he was fully retired, respectfully declined my offer, but she also represented Michael Madsen, who I instantly knew who he was. Many people, when I tell them he did my book, once they see his picture, they recognize him or hear his voice, but many people don't know his name. But I knew instantly who he was, and I thought, you know what? He'd be an even better voice for my book than Gene Hackman would have been. So we struck a financial deal, and uh, within two weeks, I had him on a plane from Malibu to uh, Vegas, and and uh, we actually enjoyed a week together recording every day. Wow, Ron, what a what a unique and amazing story. I want to just thank you for your time and sitting down with me and, and going through that story and, and showing all of our, uh, telling your story of how you found your frequency to all of our listeners. Well, it's been my pleasure getting to know you, and I thank you for your service in the Navy as well, Ryan. Hey, I, I appreciate it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, listening to the radio show, make sure you go check out the podcast on all of the most amazing podcast platforms. We're on all of them. Uh, subscribe, leave a little note, and of course, uh, give us a five-star review because five stars are better than four. Again, big thanks to Ron for joining us. You guys can check out the book at Amazon.com and RonCoreyAuthor.com. Go check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in to Finding Your Frequency right here on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. I'm Ryan Treasure, and we'll see you on the next episode.